In perhaps the most memorable scene in the 1997 classic film Good Will Hunting, a brilliant working-class janitor, played by Matt Damon, breaks down when told simply by his therapist, it's not your fault. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. I know. No, no, you don't. It's not your fault. I think about that scene a lot these days, and not just because we're living through a period of 90s nostalgia. I think about it because it exemplifies what I believe is happening on an emotional level to people who are connecting with the Bernie Sanders campaign. You see, Bernie articulates more clearly than any other candidate that the problems facing everyday Americans are not the result of laziness or a failure to work hard. It's because systems have been rigged to benefit the rich at our expense. Republicans and moderate Democrats for years have mythologized the quote-unquote undeserving poor, cast working people as takers as opposed to makers, and pretended that good outcomes were proof of merit and that poor outcomes were deserved. In psychology, this is called the just world fallacy. The idea that good things happen to good people and bad things are deserved, it helps us to feel that the world isn't so random and cruel but it also helps disguise structural issues that are at the root of so many problems that feel random, but aren't really. While wealthy politicians and CEOs have been complaining that they pay more taxes than working class people, they obscure that they've rigged the tax system so that they pay less proportionately while they take larger and larger percentages of profit. While they've been selling us on the idea of choice, they've been taking hours away. Employers can change our healthcare plans at the drop of a hat. And tough luck getting insurance at all if you find yourself laid off. While they've been telling us that living paycheck to paycheck is our fault for not getting enough education, Americans are tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt with jobs that require higher education, but which don't pay enough to keep up with 8% interest rates. Billionaires sell their rags to riches stories while declining to mention that only 4% of people born in the bottom fifth in terms of wealth ever end up at the top. And crucially, they omit the reasons why. Our current economic system constrains Americans' options, all while convincing us that our struggles are personal failings. And now, Bernie is saying clearly and unequivocally, it's not your fault. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics that are driving the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. Bernie has transformed American politics by identifying the real enemy. And now we're on a mission to close the gap between the world as it is and the world as it should be. I've come to see the emotion expressed by attendees of Bernie's rallies and town halls as akin to the release captured in that famous goodwill hunting scene. It's the emotion that comes from no longer being gaslighted and from being able to translate the private shame of personal struggles into an opportunity for solidarity and mass movement. 
On this week's episode, I talked to Jacobin staff writer Megan Day and Academy Award-winning director Michael Moore about the ideology behind left politics and why the movement led by Bernie Sanders offers something unique, a challenge to the system that is more than technocratic, more than superficial. It's a rejection of the status quo and an expansion of our political imagination to include life, true liberty, and happiness for every single one of us. I started by asking Michael Moore why his read on things is so consistently unique and often more accurate than that of most opinion setters in the pundit class. Look, I mean, I straddle a number of worlds uh, in terms of the popular culture, in, in terms of left politics, uh, the working class, which never gets discussed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it bothers me constantly to hear when they do talk about the working class and how that's, you know, that's why you should vote for Joe Biden because he's going to bring those working class voters in. And they're lying whenever they use the words working class because the majority of the working class are not angry white guys over the age of 50. The majority of the working class are women, people of color, and young people. Young people earn the, the least amount of money. Yeah. Women earn less than men. People of color earn less than people that have no color. <laughs> so it's basically, when you hear the words working class, the first image that should come into your head is a 30-year-old black woman. Mm. That's the working class of the United States of America. Mm. It's so it's funny you mentioned that. You know, there was an article by uh, Thomas Frank who wrote Listen Liberal and What's mm-hmm. the Matter with Kansas a couple years ago in The Guardian where he wrote about how the Democratic Party had turned its back on the working class and it needed to do better. And not once in the article did he mention the words white, working class, anything that was racial in nature. And he got dragged on the internet for saying, basically arguing, people are arguing that he's defending the white working class. Why does everything have to be about white working class? The Democratic Party is about people of color too. And he was like, hey, wait a minute. It's not me at this point. Oftentimes it's not liberals. It's not like conservatives at this point who are whitewashing the working class. It is presumptively some people in the center left to the left who are so sensitive, understandably, about pandering to white working class interests and throwing the interests of other people under the bus that they don't keep in their minds the possibility of a more diverse working class coalition. To them, and you saw this following 2016 when there was this conversation about what caused Trump to win, Mm -hmm. you know, and this insistence that it was exclusively race, right? Mm -hmm. And there was no class component to it as opposed to a conversation we could very easily have about it being both. So why do you think that is that class is rarely discussed? I mean, there is there is like a historical narrative that's laid out very well in Listen Liberal about how basically with the rise of television, there was a, a greater need, the, the power of big dollar donations grew because suddenly you could, more money meant more advertising dollars and had a real impact on elections. And at that point, the Democratic Party, with the McGovern loss, they basically freaked out and said, we got to start earning a lot of corporate money too, abandoned the Labor Party, stopped talking about class issues, decided to go for the big dollar donations as well, and we got two corporate parties in a more cemented way than we ever had before. But I think there's also a lot of well-meaning liberals who bought into the idea that politics could be fully known based on identity, mm-hmm. right? Not that identity is an important lens that informs people's politics, mm-hmm. but that all you, the Republicans are bad and racist and white and Democrats are good and diverse and LGBT and good. Mm-hmm. And that that was as far as politics had to go because 
Otherwise, there's no difference, right? If, if both parties are kind of courting the same class interests, then the only thing that distinguishes them is more cultural issues, mm-hmm. whether it's abortion or race and things right. like that. So now we're in this pickle where people are now having to confront the reality that we have AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Ilham Omar supporting mm-hmm. someone because of his mm-hmm. politics and right. Bernie Sanders, but who doesn't share their racial identity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's an interesting turning point we're at right now, and I'm interested to see where it goes. Mm-hmm. But I want to know from, from you, someone who's been described as this kind of working class whisperer, who when mm-hmm. so many people mm-hmm. thought that Michigan was a long shot, who wrote Bernie Sanders off in 2016, mm-hmm. You correctly identified what was going on in the country. And I'm curious, what inputs are you seeing that informed your views back then? And what are you seeing now? Do you expect those the same kind of trends, the same kind of unexpected success of Bernie, especially in these states that are known as these like working class bastions? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll give you a good example of where I live in northern Michigan. I live in a town called Traverse City, Michigan. Mm. In the primary in 2016, uh, not only did Bernie win the state of Michigan, but you'd think this, the city that he would have done the best in would be Ann Arbor, mm. right, just traditionally. The city he did best in was in Traverse City. Mm. 70% Bernie, 30% Hillary. That was the spread. Mm. Traverse City had voted twice for George W. Bush in 2000 and 2004. So I found that very interesting to see how did it go from just a few years earlier being a, I would say, a fairly Republican town, not a right-wing town, but these liberal Republicans that are in Michigan. New York State had them, the Mm -hmm. Rockefeller Republicans, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. How did it go from that to Bernie? But I think think the campaign, I'm guessing, in the polling that has happened here, that you found that oftentimes in certain places— where Trump was the first choice of the voter, their second choice was Bernie Sanders. Right. And the, the pundits, the pundit class, didn't understand how to deal with that. I think I understand it. I think that people, people, remember, most Americans don't identify themselves with, hi, I'm a Democrat. Right. Or, hey, I'm a Republican. Nobody is an I'm a anything. Mm. They're just trying to get by. They're trying to get by. They're trying to get out of work after 10 hours so they can maybe get 45 minutes with the kids before they got to put them to bed. You know, that's that's really what's on most people's minds and how to pay the bills this month. So I think because so many people are so fed up with a political system that has let them down, that has promised them any of a number of things and hasn't come through on, that they're looking for the person who's outside that box. Hmm. They want somebody like, for the people who voted for Trump, he was so far out of the box. And he loved, they, people that voted for Trump loved that he scared the establishment mm-hmm. and that he scared the Republican Party establishment, mm-hmm. that he scared them all because he wasn't part of any of it because he doesn't believe in anything. First of all, Trump has no <laughs> ideology right. except the ideology, ideology of Donald J. Trump. He totally <laughs> believes in Donald right. J. Trump. You know, the first time I ran into him, I first came to New York after Roger and me mm-hmm. was at a benefit for Planned Parenthood. And I think he was one of the co-sponsors of the benefit. Really? Oh, yeah. No, this guy has <laughs> flipped every which way the wind blows. Yeah. Whatever benefits him, that's what he's that he, he's down with. But to the public, he, he had a TV show that was on for 14 seasons. Mm-hmm. 
And because our side doesn't even own a TV, mm-hmm. or if they do, they're not hooked up to cable. You know, you put on your Apple Play and then you can you know, just watch what you want to watch. But our fellow Americans still watch TV. And out there between the Hudson River and Interstate 5, people love that show. Mm-hmm. They love the show because they got to cathartically live through Donald Trump. Not just the the American dream that he was living on in his gold-plated Trump Tower. Right. But it was also the fact that every week they got to watch him fire the jerk. And everybody works next to that jerk. Mm-hmm. And every office, everybody watching this right now, you know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. The person in your office, the cubicle. three cu- <laughs> Not here. <laughs> nah, three cubicles down. No, there is somebody that does work here right. that just could be a little nicer to people, could be a little less snarky, mm-hmm. could be a little less whatever. And every week you got to sit there on the sofa and watch Donald Trump. He never fired, never got rid of the good people. Right. He got rid of, he got, and when it went to Celebrity Apprentice, he got rid of Gary Busey. Mm-hmm. He got rid of Meatloaf. <laughs> You're fired. You're fired. You know, they had, they had an acting coach. It took them two weeks to get him to be able to say that one line. He couldn't really? say the line. No. Well, what CEO has ever said you're fired to anybody? Fair they have, enough. They have henchmen do it. Right. He's never said the words, you're fired. So they had to teach him how to say you're fired. Mm. You're fired. And I think when people see that, yeah, they got rid of that guy. I work next to that guy. And so people love the show for that. And that's how they knew Trump. They don't know. They don't know anything yeah. else really about, I, I about Trump. I think your point about a lot of people saying that Bernie was their second choice when Trump was their first and the media not knowing what to do with that, the interpretation of that by the mainstream press is – you know, this horseshoe theory argument, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, if, if the same people like both Bernie and Trump must mean that they have the same agenda, that Mm-mm. they no, no. mean the same thing for no. the country. And it can be, you know, you can have some pretty difficult conversations with people because they are offended by that notion. They think that the notion that Bernie Sanders is an independent means that he doesn't share the values of the Democratic Party. I think what it means is, is that both Trump and Bernie, as they are perceived by the different people that would support them, are perceived as completely authentic people. And what's really interesting about Trump is he's so inauthentic. Right. That that makes him authentic. Right. He's and so get that. No, I know. And you can so trust his inauthenticity. And then and then when he says things like, I could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and nothing would happen to me, it's like, oh, he's actually telling you the truth. Right. You know? When you're so audacious about your lie, when you're when you if I say I'm wearing a green coat. Right. You and I both know I'm not wearing a green coat. My confidence in my ability to say that, it says something else about my trust in myself. It feels truthful because you and I both know we're thinking the same thing, even though I'm telling you a lie, right? right. And his failure to, his unwillingness to apologize for, for anything right. is kind of this miraculous shield that Democrats haven't quite figured out how to diffuse, right? right. <laughs> he does something terrible. We all go and say he should be ashamed of himself, but he doesn't say he's ashamed of himself. So there's never that part of the media cycle where he is contrite. And where everyone has to admit that he did something wrong. We have to move on to the next thing because what is it? What is there? There's no repentance. There's no, not, that moment doesn't exist. And there's a strange kind of power in that. So then there becomes this question of how do you diffuse someone like Trump? What do you do with someone who, because of their own like lapse of integrity or their own indifference to being called out or shamed, Trump is able to say whatever he wants to about you regardless of hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like the left Democrats live in this space where we're like pointing out hypocrisy is the be all end all of our argument. 
Mm-hmm. You know, how dare you say you were, you, you know, you were going to, you know, keep people from dying in the street, Trump, and now you're trying to cut Obamacare without a plan to replace it. Right. You know, how dare you accuse so-and-so of sexual assault when you've been accused of raping all of these women, you know? Right. And he's like, I don't care. I never said I was a good person, but you did. Right. Democrats, you did say that you were good and above the saw, so I'm going to call out your stuff. It seems to me the only way to beat that is with someone who has unimpeachable integrity. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's Bernie. Here's the one thing you know about Bernie is that he will never sell out. Uh, whether you love Bernie or you don't love Bernie or whatever, here's what you know about Bernie. What you see is what you get. He's not going to change. He can't be bought. He's had 78 years to cash in, <laughs> right. to get his yacht, to get his golden palace, whatever. And I think, this is why I think Bernie will crush Trump, or if Trump doesn't make it to the election, whoever is in his stead, that the public right now wants the person who's going to be just exactly who he says that she is, or who she says that she is. Whoever the candidate is that is the most authentic. You know something about Bernie that if he has promised you he's going to do this, I swear to God he's going to do it. He's going to find a way to do it. He won't do it alone. He'll bring us in on it. He'll bring all the people in, the people of this country that he's there to serve. He will be the servant of the people in the White House. That's going to feel so refreshing when the public finally has a chance to vote and think about, yeah, that's who I want. I, I say to people, listen, the, 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 the gruff exterior that you see in Bernie or the way he come, comes off maybe sometimes. Somebody said to me one time, who are those two guys in the Muppets, uh, Statler and Waldorf <laughs> in, the, in the balcony? It's like one of them is Bernie. And it's like, yeah, but you don't understand. What you need to see when you hear Bernie at the microphone like that, what you are witnessing is his armor. You're witnessing a person who's got his armor on because he's going into battle for us. He is going to stand firm. He will not give in. He will not relent. Because you know this is really a war. It's a war for so many things. It's a war to save our planet. But but that's that's who I want in the White House. Yeah. I, I want some somebody who literally, I don't want him to pass away, obviously. <laughs> but I want somebody, just like I believe this about myself, mm-hmm. I believe that you believe this about yourself, what would you be willing to do for others? And you know that speech, that speech. in in uh, Queensbridge Park yeah. when he ended it, I had never seen anything. When I looked around the crowd, and if if you haven't heard it, you should link to it or go listen to it. If you don't want to listen to the whole thing, go to the end. Listen to the last five minutes. He asks everybody at the rally to look around and find somebody that doesn't look like you. Maybe somebody that isn't of the same skin color. Maybe somebody that isn't of the same gender. Maybe maybe there's two men holding hands there and you're a heterosexual. Whatever it is. And look at that person, the stranger, and ask yourself, would you be willing to fight as hard for them as you would for yourself? And if the answer is yes, then we're going to make it. This country, We're going to make it. This country is going to be better. We are going to have the America that we've never had. It was so emotional. I looked yeah. around. I couldn't believe everybody was yeah. in tears. I have never been to a politician's rally, and that includes his, mm. where I have seen people crying yeah. over what a politician just said. Yeah. But you see, because but that's the beauty of him, because he's not really a politician. Yeah. And, and I think that that's why... There are these Trump voters mm-hmm. who will list him as the second choice because they see everybody else 
as just the same old, same old. And with him, they may not agree with him on a number of things, but at least they know what you see is what you get. And it's one of the most inspiring things about Bernie. And, And I know having known him, having spoken at his first rally when he won for Congress. Mm-hmm. I flew to Vermont. I know he was trying to get celebrities to come. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, you know, he, nobody's going to go to Vermont to an unknown guy, mayor of Burlington who says he's a democratic socialist. <laughs> so I said to him, Bernie, you know, that was a big year for celebrities. There was Crocodile Dundee. There was Millie Vanilli. <laughs> there was Vanilla Ice. There, there was a, a lot of people he could have got. And all he could get was me. Actually, he got, no, he had... He had two guys from Vermont who made ice cream, <laughs> and they had me, the guy who ate ice cream, and, uh, and I said that in the, in the park. It was just uh, it's okay. They don't have can to. Can I go. say? Okay, I'm going to retire it after this podcast. It's a good life. But it was like it's just it was just a funny because it's true. Actually, do you know? Actually, can I just say now that we are moving to the lifestyle section of the podcast? <laughs> of course. I have lost 78 pounds in the last 24 months. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. And, and I have eaten Ben and Jerry's ice cream every single night before going to bed. I've made I didn't it a, do that diet. No, seriously. I have. I have. And what am I drinking over here? A, a oh, cola. Yeah. There's something to be said for it, just satisfying your urges, right? Because there's a, there's diet literature from like the, the 80s said like eat all this sugar-free, fat-free stuff that oh, no. doesn't even taste good. That made, and by the way, we'll blame Harvard for this too, because the sugar <laughs> industry mm. paid off a bunch of scientists at Harvard to do these studies to show that the problem was we have too much fat in our diet. Right, which is... And what the sugar companies wanted was then to take the fat out and replace it with the sugar, and that's what happened. And when I stopped shaming myself and I said, you can eat whatever you want, yeah, as much as you want, whenever you want, right. just have one rule. Only, only eat when I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. And when I'm not, I won't. Yeah. And I'll stop when I'm full. Right. You know, and it has it has this I still have like 60, 70 pounds to go. But, uh, you know, I just think more ice cream is going to get me there. <laughs> but uh, um, well, that, that you can cut all about, that out if you want. Well, I mean, I, I, look, I think that point about shaming weirdly has resonance, re- resonance across all kinds of political contexts. Right. You know. The reality is that there were a lot of folks are st- on our on our side of the aisle are obsessed with this notion that if we just point out the things that Trump does that are awful and in fact shameful enough. If we shame voters who did not vote and say, you know, you know, I hear this a lot when I'm at black events, you know, your your ancestors fought and died for this right. Why aren't you getting out there? Why, you know, Mm -hmm. how dare you um, squander this opportunity? You know, I was able to see some uh, footage when you were making your last film and you, there was a, an interview with a bunch of non-voters and I believe West Virginia and their conversation was so interesting to me because these were all people who were deeply committed, active in their communities. These were not fence sitters. These are not people who, people who are indifferent to what happened in the world. And they all articulated that the reason they didn't vote was because they didn't feel like they were being offered something affirmative to vote for in the election. And that after spending decades of your life dutifully going out and voting for candidates who don't offer meaningful change and don't even pretend to offer meaningful change, right? right? Who literally, in this election, we're seeing people expressly run on the notion of incrementalism and trying to like play incrementalism off as pragmatism, right? As though we don't notice that the reason that we actually can't have good things isn't because we can't afford them. And this is is the lid that Bernie's blown off, 
right? Yeah, He's exposed right. the notion that it's not because we can't afford to have these things. Canada can afford it. Yes, they're a tenth of size smaller or smaller than us, but their economy is also the tenth of the size of ours, right? Yeah. All these other countries can do it. The reason we don't do it is because we're choosing to put our money elsewhere in the military industrial complex, in the pockets of Wall Street financiers, mm-hmm. right? These are choices that we're making. And when you're talking about the emotional resonance of that speech in the park and the, the catharsis, that feeling of wanting to cry because you're looking around and saying, oh, gosh, we really are in this together. I call that the uh, I think of that as the like, um, it's not your fault moment from mm. Goodwill Hunting, because mm. mm. we have been told the political right. lie has been everything bad in your life is your fault. Right. If you're poor, you didn't work hard enough. You should have gone to college. Oh, but you shouldn't have taken out that debt. That's your fault, too, if you're, you're mm-hmm. saddled with that debt. Right. And for someone to finally say, actually, there are systems that have been rigged against you beyond your imagination. The law has been written for the entire history of this country to benefit the people who elites in ways that you will never benefit from. And that I'm someone who can actually speak truth to that power because I have been able to get to this political position without taking a dime from any of those interests. Mm. It's like a once in a lifetime opportunity, a once in a generation opportunity. That is correct. We're in a dark time. To give up this opportunity now to have the country we really want to have because we've got the TV on for too many hours of the day listening to the pundits drill it into our heads that, well, a few months ago the drill was it's got to be Joe Biden, it's got to be Joe Biden, it's got to be somebody in the center, it's got to be a moderate, it's the only way we can win. When all the research shows that when Democrats run to the left, that's when they win. When they try to pretend to be nicer Republicans, right. that's when they lose. Right. So that's all very true. It's It really is. The thing that really, that I've that's really been upsetting me lately is how the centrists, we'll just call them that, the Bidens and the judges. this thing, man, when they say this about, you can't just tell 149 million people that there goes their private health care insurance. And I'm like, are you kidding and I heard UAW guys saying that before the strike. Mm. You know, uh, yeah, we can't go to this Medicare for all because we, we've negotiated this great health insurance. And it is. It's, it is pretty damn good health insurance. I grew up on it. Mm. So three days into the strike, when the UAW went on strike against General Motors last month, three days into the strike, the CEO of General Motors cuts off everybody's health care. Right. People were freaked out. What? Yeah. And I said, yeah, that's what happens in a system where it's not a right codified by law. But when your boss, and I mean any boss, not just UAW, not just union even, everybody listening to this or watching this knows, your boss can wake up tomorrow morning and just go, you know what? We got to cut back. Let's cut the health care. What are you going to do about it? They control it. That is absolutely immoral. And the fact that we allowed that coupled with a system that's based on profit-making health insurance companies. This is stunning to me that we allow a company to make a profit off because somebody got sick. And the only way they make their real profits is by denying claims. I didn't make a movie, Sicko, about 50 million people that didn't have health insurance. Why would I ask you to go to the movies on a Friday night to be told that there's 50 million people that not only don't have health insurance, but that that's wrong? Right. You don't need to go see a movie for me. I said, we're going to make a movie about the people who have health insurance and think that they're the cat's meow. And that, you know, yeah, that's right. When I, if I get sick, I'm all covered. Right. And in fact, that's a lie. Right. 
Right. That's a lie that, that has been perpetrated upon people. And to hear Democrats at the debates perpetrating this lie, I'm like, okay, you, sir, when's the last time you had this so-called great health insurance? Yeah, you've got it because either because you were a vice president and you were a U.S. senator and all that for all those years, you never had to worry about it. Right. You know, keep in mind that if you've got good health insurance, that health insurance company is right now trying to think of how to screw you when you get sick because mm-hmm. they cannot be paying for all this and make the profits that they need to make. I want to ask you, just give me an opportunity, because you are such an effective communicator and because you have communicated so effectively to diverse political groups, I wonder what your message would be to people who are in the kind of like more liberal elites, the people who occupy the mainstream media, the people who largely comprise the the demographic of people who are supporting Elizabeth Warren right now, wealthier, more college-educated, wider audience, who are good liberals and who share our values broadly, but who aren't bought into this idea of a revolution and don't take seriously the scope of what we think we can accomplish with the Bernie Sanders campaign. You know, what would be your message to them to help them understand what's at stake here? You've got over 50 years of evidence of what Bernie Sanders has done. All kinds of evidence. Start with the photographic evidence in Chicago Mm -hmm. in 1963 when he is being violently arrested by the Chicago police because he was demonstrating against segregation. He was demonstrating in favor of civil rights. In 1963, if I go out anywhere and and speak on behalf of Bernie, I want that slide behind me. Mm -hmm. I will not go to the lectern unless that is behind me. Well, some people are dismissive of that. Some people say, oh, that's so long ago. You know, so long ago when it mean? wasn't popular for a white person, because right. he could just he could have just rested in his white privilege. Right. It's a white Jewish guy from New York. Right. The fact that he he's to Jewish do anything. is meaningful there as well, because so many Jewish activists were getting killed across the country for participating in civil rights activism. Right. Yeah. Yes. And, and most famously uh, in, in Mississippi. Right. Uh, two young Jewish men and a young black man. And, but yes, it was happening. This is, I'm telling you, it's so upsetting to me to think about. And God bless Sean King for his speech. If you if you have a link on your site anywhere and you can link to what, when Bernie announced at Brooklyn College back in January that he was going to yeah. run. And Sean gave the biography of Bernie. It was amazing. And I've known Bernie now for 30 years. I couldn't see him in the frame, but I know he was backstage going, oh, jeez, <laughs> don't bring that up. Because he, this guy is so humble. Mm. He has an overdose of humility that sometimes doesn't serve him well because he doesn't want you telling his whole story of the struggle, of the near poverty that he was born in and grew up in, of the parents he lost before uh, in a time when before they he should have lived a longer life, yeah. but the struggle they had to live. The, the, the fact that he, you and I probably have a lot of cousins and we have aunts and uncles and we have extended families and But when you are a family where the Holocaust has wiped out yeah. the extended family, you don't need a long table at Thanksgiving. We just, that's the privilege of those of us who haven't had to experience that. Yeah. So uh, he has 50 years of this. And I think that that goes a long way for me. 
Bernie was talking about climate change before it was called climate change. Right. When he talked about doubling the minimum wage, they literally looked at him like one of your insane professor. <laughs> you know, like, like that would just spew stuff. The fact that he didn't believe it should be a crime to be in love with and want to marry somebody of your gender. Mm-hmm. Go down the whole list with him. He's the OG of so much of this, especially in the politician class, where oftentimes it was only Bernie saying these things. And here's the beauty of what he's done for this country. He moved, he and others, moved our fellow Americans to all those positions where now the majority of Americans agree with Bernie Sanders. He's no longer out on that crazy left wing of the the limb of the tree. The majority of Americans want that minimum wage doubled. The majority of Americans believe women should be paid the same as, as men. The majority of Americans believe that climate change is real. The majority of Americans want to go down the list. The majority of Americans are against mass incarceration. The majority of Americans are against the death penalty. The majority of Americans are for choice. I can go on and on. In other words, the majority of Americans in 2019 have taken the Bernie Sanders position that he had in 1970. <laughs> That's right. He didn't, he didn't change. The country changed. The country came to him. And he and others, we all owe a great debt to the fact that now we don't really have to do the work to convince people that the planet's dying or that that we shouldn't be locking up a certain race of people at the rate that we do. Everybody gets that now. Thank you, Bernie. And what better ending to this story than to have the OG of this (laughs) in the White House? I think that's an amazing answer. And thank you so much, Michael Moore, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your solidarity. Oh, thank you. No, believe me, thank you. And I hope everybody that's listening will talk to others about this. And and this is our moment. This is our chance. I am on a mission to to save the America that we've never had. Mm. I want that America in my in my lifetime. And I'm sure many people listening or watching to this also want it. And next time when I come, I will come better dressed. <laughs> we, we take you take you as you are, and we're happy to have you. Right, thank, thank, thank you, you again. Thank you. We live in a time where we have a man sending us to war for fictitious reasons, whether it's the fictitious of duct tape or the fictitious of orange alert. We are against this war, Mr. Bush. Shame on you, Mr. Bush. Shame on you. And any time... I'm so glad to be joined by Megan Day, who's a writer at Jacobin and who has written a lot of really helpful articles recently to help us understand the distinctions between Bernie Sanders and some of the other candidates in the field. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. So as I was you know, preparing for this interview, I realized that part of your career trajectory has been a short jaunt, a short stint at, at Mother Jones. And what was really interesting to me as a person who was formerly of the left media world myself, you know, what the contrast was like between that work experience and other experiences and how you came to kind of identify as a leftist in the journalism space. Yeah, I dabbled a little bit in more mainstream progressive media. It seemed like a better fit before the 2016 primary (laughs) happened. A lot changed for me then. I found myself feeling 
quite different from a lot of the people I was surrounded by who didn't seem to understand with quite the same urgency or clarity as I did that, as the saying goes, Bernie would have won. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it was really lucky for me that after I spent some time at Mother Jones, I decided to freelance and Jacobin was actually looking for someone to come on as a full-time staff writer. Meanwhile, I was looking for an opportunity to write about politics the way that I wanted to, not mm. the way that, you know, other people wanted me to. And this was like, a match made in heaven. And ever since then, I've been uh, on the, you know, on the, the American political beat at Jacobin. And it's given me an opportunity to talk about socialism and what it means to Americans today, what it means internationally today, and how to build a socialism for the 21st century. So how do you define it? Because I'm asked, I'm asked this question a lot, but someone who writes for a socialist magazine is much more equipped than I am. Um, how do you explain to your friends and family what you mean by socialism? Well, there's like nine different registers you can explain it on going <laughs> right. into greater and greater detail. I think that I would start by saying, what is capitalism? Mm -hmm. Capitalism is actually really distinct and unique. Uh, we take it for granted because it's what we live under, but it doesn't have to be like that, which is to say that under capitalism, some people own what Marx kind of uh, called in an antiquated way, uh, the means of production. But it really just means you own, you own tools, you own factories, you own land, or you own money itself, which creates more money. And if you're in that position, you don't have to work for a living. Your money works for you. What you own works for you. And everybody else, which is the vast majority of people, have to sell their labor to the person who's in the, the position of being a capitalist in order to access the basic means of survival. So socialism describes a completely different political economy. It describes a situation where no private individuals own the means of production. Um, we, you know, we're basically eliminating private ownership of firms. Now, do I think this is around the corner? No, absolutely not. But you can see socialist principles alive and well in the mass demand for Medicare for all, which is basically saying, look, there are these private individuals who own these insurance companies. Everybody else is at their whim. Why don't we just take those back? into the democratic sphere, into the public sphere, and own it ourselves and make it something that we all pay for ourselves and that we all provide for ourselves without that specter of private ownership and private profit hanging over it. Right. So there is a sense that there are at least some areas where we've all agreed that the profit motive is antithetical to the needs of our community in really visceral ways, right? So whether it's healthcare or whether it's the fire department, you know, things that are kind of life or death essential needs, we're increasingly coming around to understanding we should have more control over as a society. When you're making that kind of a pitch, I don't know what your family is like if you're a red diaper baby and everybody's already on board or what have you. But, you know, if your grandparent or aunt or someone is a little bit more distant from the lefty scene asks you to explain kind of what you do and what Jacobin is all about, is there a palatable pitch that you go to or certain analogies that you make to make it seem a little less scary for folks? So basically what I start out with is just talking about the basic things that people need, because we can all agree that, you know, basic goods and services, the essentials of life shouldn't be gatekept by people for profit. I mean, well, one thing that we start out with is public school, right? Mm. When I'm explaining Medicare for all people, I basically explain it by saying that it's like public school, but for health insurance. When people are scared of the idea that they might have to pay more in taxes, Obviously, the comparison is, look, if we didn't have public schools, you would be paying way more than you currently pay in taxes to fund public schools in order to send your kid to a private school. Or possibly, if you didn't have the money, your kid just wouldn't get an education. But we all agreed that education is a right, 
right? And that's what we want to do with healthcare. We want to say that it's a right. I think that's a really powerful analogy. I think the public school analogy, and also when we talk about libraries, I find that that moves people. People will say, we shouldn't cancel student debt because Jared Kushner's student debt shouldn't get canceled. But when you raise the question of, should Jared Kushner have to pay $100 to check a book out of a library just because he can, people start to understand this idea of public goods a little bit more clearly. And I think you get a lot of traction. So thank you for that. So as someone who identifies, I tend to land on the term leftist. I think that's what I... I think is most specific in the the pantheon of terms that are floating around out there, progressive, et cetera, that have, some of which have gotten kind of co-opted. As someone who identifies as a leftist, I think one of the things that we're confronted with by folks who should be our allies in this battle, but who aren't quite there in terms of their personal identification is, it seems like there's a lot of quote unquote litmus tests. 2016 was this moment, as you identified, where it became clear that even among the broad left, there were these sticking points that a lot of us felt but had never heard articulated by a candidate, and therefore we were all kind of voting en masse without as much tension. Then here comes Bernie Sanders, who is actually articulating a worldview that's much closer to the worldview of a lot of us, right? And it becomes clear that to, to the folks who don't necessarily share that worldview or weren't as familiar with those items, a lot of those uh, talking points, a lot of those um, policy points were described as litmus tests and that it was somehow unfair to be raising them, right? It's somehow unfair to be like putting that stuff on the plate now when we all had kind of agreed to be okay with this other version of candidate. So I want to know what your response is to that because ultimately those quote unquote litmus tests, those moral lines in the sand, I would call them, are what make a lot of us feel like only Bernie is the candidate of choice here in this race, because he's the only one who on so many different policy prongs has taken what we perceive to be the ethical, correct choice. That's completely right. I think basically when people complain about the emergence of litmus tests in the sort of Democratic Party sphere, what they're really saying is that somebody came along and pushed the envelope way further than they were comfortable with. And they've got people in their ear telling them that they can't actually do that. But they also know that it's very popular so that they probably should do that to protect (laughs) their careers. And it's putting them in an uncomfortable spot. And, And the result is that they're complaining about new litmus tests that didn't exist before. But this is actually one of the selling points about Bernie Sanders. I mean, this is one of my favorite things about him is that he doesn't wait for demands or ideas to become poll tested and acceptable and popular before he pushes them. In fact, he's been, you can find documents of him talking about single payer healthcare in the early 1970s. He's been talking about single payer healthcare this whole time because it's obviously correct. And the thing that changed actually is that after the Great Recession, a sort of what you might call a populist mood kind of gripped the country. This is what the punditry calls it, a populist mood. And it could go either way. It could go to the left, it could go to the right. We've seen it go to the right. You had little, you had the Tea Party, you had Occupy, you had Black Lives Matter, you had the rise of Donald Trump. But Bernie Sanders managed to capture a lot of that energy and channel it somewhere coherent into a positive political vision grounded in material and achievable demands. Hmm. The problem was that some of those demands actually contravene the wishes of the donor class, the people who are actually bankrolling the Democratic Party. So that's put them in a tough spot, and that's why they complain about it. But I think it's one of the best things about it. Right. So then when you are asking people to draw these contrasts between the rest of the field and Bernie Sanders, given the fact that 
so many folks have at least superficially adopted aspects of his 2016 platform. There is this question that keeps floating about, um, gets bandied about by the media class that says, well, what's the point of Bernie now that everybody's cottoned on to his agenda? So for folks who might feel like the lines have been blurred, what to you are the most significant points on which only Bernie is, is still a choice? Like The reason why it's only Bernie still. So the reason why is that saying that you're for something is not the same as fighting for something once you've been elected to office. It seems like our interlocutors in this hypothetical conversation are actually accepting the premise that Bernie Sanders has actually pushed the discourse significantly to the left. So why not then, why wouldn't we draw the conclusion that he's the one who's most likely to fight for all those things that everybody else just said that they agreed with? See, the thing is, when other people sort of come around to something like Medicare for All or tuition-free college, they're responding to the fact that they have to run against Bernie Sanders. But if they were to win the nomination and then go on to win the election and then become president, they're not responding to Bernie Sanders anymore. So what are their instincts? their instincts are going to be much more moderate. And then not to mention, they're going to have enormous pressure from the capitalist class bearing down on them, from the party establishments, both party establishments bearing down on them. They're not going to have the will to fight. The only person who's going to have the will to fight is the person who has been pushing everybody to the left, right? The person that everybody else is responding to already. So you need somebody who's honestly so stubborn, You need someone who knows what's right, has always known what's right, has already has a proven track record of forcing other people to get on board with what's right, even if they don't personally feel it in their heart, just because the sheer force of the movement that he's created has changed the political economy such that they're forced to respond. That's the only kind of person who's actually going to be able to fight for Medicare for all and win. Mm. That's the only kind of person who's who's going to be able to fight for tuition-free college or student debt cancellation and win. So are there – so you mentioned – student debt cancellation. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about how only Bernie has a plan to cancel all student debt, right? And there is a blurring of even that, right, with other people who have plans to cancel some portion of debt. Some candidates have just recently rejiggered their plans after a lot of criticism that they were too Byzantine. Still, it remains true that Bernie Sanders is the only one who's canceling all student debt. Are there other policy points where the, the you think the distinctions have become particularly blurred that you would like to clarify? Perhaps something you know from these pieces that you've been writing about whether it's foreign policy, other other areas where the distinctions haven't been made clear as of yet. Yeah, this is kind of this is one of the situ- tricky situations that we're in. We've got a lot of people running and a lot of people who want to claim the mantle of progressive. There's actually. Only one person, I think, who doesn't actively want to claim the mantle of progressive, and that's Joe Biden, who seems Mm. uninterested in appealing to anything progressive or or progressives. He's sort of hoping that people will associate him with Barack Obama, who they will forget wasn't actually that progressive at the end of the day, (laughs) and that that'll sort of rub off on him, right? Everybody else wants to be seen as a progressive. And so they're adopting a lot of Bernie's points. And Bernie himself has said, you know, this is a good thing. This is what I want, because it shows that I'm, that not just me, as, as he says, not me, us, but me and all the people who want the things that I've been talking about have been able to push these people much further to the left. The problem that's arisen is that it's hard to tell who's sincere. Mm. So, you know, you have people who are are moving into a space that Hillary Clinton was never moving into. It's like saying that they actually... Hillary Clinton said single payer is never, ever going to happen. That's a direct quote from Hillary Clinton. That's not what's happening right now. You've got people like Elizabeth Warren saying, I'm for single payer. 
what is it? I don't know. Ask, ask Bernie, right? <laughs> so, so it is, it is getting a little blurry, I think, but we need to make sure that we, I guess we need to make sure that we convince people to, to look at where these ideas originated and look at where they're spelled out the clearest. And that's in Bernie Sanders's uh, campaign. So I think that that point that you're making about Bernie's consistency and our ability to rely on him doing the right thing outside of the context of an electoral battle and outside of the pressures of being directly compared to others in a, in a race is extremely strong. And in my view, is enough on its own to say, what let's throw our weight behind this guy. At the same time, though, it almost concedes on some level that the policies are, in fact, the same, right? Uh, on some level, and you get this from a lot of main, the mainstream media class, they decline to get into the details of, this, of the different policies. So two candidates release a labor policy. If two candidates release a Green New Deal policy, the important distinctions between them are glossed over. The fact that Bernie Sanders remains the only, at least the only top candidate that wants to end at-will employment is an incredibly important distinction, right? Especially as we're having these conversations about discrimination against LGBT folks that was happening at the Supreme Court right now, especially as we're having a conversation about discrimination against pregnant women, right? In an at-will employment scenario, you can be a protected class all day and night, but it doesn't protect you, right? So the fact that the media aren't picking up on these extraordinary distinctions that are going to have real effects on human beings, some of the most vulnerable human beings in our country, does a real disservice to the voter who was looking to these articles, not just to know so-and-so announced a policy today, but to know how they should judge said policy against everything that's out in the field. And what's ended up happening in some ways, it feels like the most proximate policy, the just the most recent thing to get released, is described in the media as though it is the best policy. So I wonder if, if you know, if there's a, an example, a policy example that jumps out to you as something where you think the distinctions haven't been sufficiently made. I think that the climate thing, the, the climate is an area where they haven't been made. I mean, on some level, I think that Jacobin has been the only publication that's been consistently trying to tease out the differences between Elizabeth Warren's vision for climate, Joe Biden's vision for climate, and Bernie Sanders's vision for climate, those three being the front runners. For the most part, you're right, whatever the most recent plan is to come out or whatever new deal, a, can a new like a feature a candidate announces is described as the most ambitious thing, as though we're totally pegged to timing, right? right? When in reality, Bernie Sanders is planning to spend the most public money to get us out of the most dangerous threat that we've ever faced as a global civilization. And that on its own ought to tell you that these things are completely different. The plans are completely different. But it's not just about the money, though I think obviously we should be willing to spend our own money as a society to make sure that our own society doesn't collapse. It's also about the orientation within the plans themselves. So Joe Biden doesn't actually have a real plan. He just wants, he thinks that he basically says like everything to do with climate change can be traced back to Trump, which is completely <laughs> ridiculous. So he wants to undo the things that Trump has done and maybe take us back to the Obama years when everyone knows the world wasn't melting, right? Um, but Elizabeth Warren, it's a little bit trickier because she does have a plan and it has been described as an ambitious plan, but it's very different in kind from Bernie Sanders' mm. plan. So Elizabeth Warren, the main mechanism that it relies on is this idea of green domestic manufacturing. Mm. So we're going to use the United States' privileged position in the world market to basically manufacture 
green goods here and tell other countries that they need to, if they want to have access to United States markets, they need to change their environmental standards in order to play and compete. It's totally reliant on the idea of markets, on competition, and it sees corporations as key valued partners in the fight against climate change. But not the bad corporations that got us into this, good corporations. How do we make corporations good? Through a sort of carrot and stick combination, sort of like uh, elaborate Rube Goldberg machine <laughs> that incentivizes and regulates them to bring out the best in the private sector, right? So Bernie Sanders has a completely different idea. Bernie Sanders' idea for the Green New Deal is basically the corporations got us into this mess and they're not going to get us out of this mess. We need to tax those corporations Make it make that money that they, is currently in their possession be public money and use that on public solutions like overhauling our infrastructure, transitioning to renewable energy. His idea is basically to set up ad administrations and bodies that function like the Tennessee Valley Authority did uh, in the New Deal era, which is that you know rural people lacked electricity and people were out of work. You can kill two birds with one stone there by making public jobs with public money to solve a problem that affects the public. That is fundamentally different in kind from this idea of green manufacturing and relying on the market to stoke competition, to make corporations be better, to get us out of the climate crisis. So I, I think that's been very little discussed, which is really disappointing to me because then you see people basically saying like, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders both have climate plans. They differ a little bit, but these are the two, you know, plans to beat, which I just think is fundamentally untrue. And this is far too important an issue for us to just, you know, leave that to the side, I think. Yeah, that ideological piece, it always ends up coming back to that, right? Like, we can play, there's there's two strategies that you could, uh, of approach that you could take. I'm ambivalent still about which is the most effective. You can go down line by line and explain to people why, on the merits, our policies are more holistic, more um, broad-based, farther reaching, have more funding, are genuinely events more commitment, are more intersectional, better in every respect. But at the end of the day, I know that what motivates me personally and what gives me confidence in Bernie Sanders' approach is his philosophical approach that sees corporations as a problem that need the, the, the people who cause the problem that need to be taxed to fix it, that need to be subject to litigation, to be forced to pay, to be held accountable, that don't trust them as partners because there's an informed skepticism of their fact that they're always going to be driven by the profit motive. I think back to my corporate law class. I was actually taught by a lefty um, who explained to us in the first week of class how the founding fathers were actually highly skeptical of corporations, how they only wanted them to be 20 to 30 years in length because they understood the intrinsic threat that they posed to a democracy, the in intrinsic threat that a large collections of money posed to a represent representative, sort of at the time, representative <laughs> democracy. And any plan that would characterize those actors as partners I am going to be inherently skeptical of. And any worldview that sees those people as potential partners, I'm going to be inherently skeptical of. Because then what happens when you're staffing up your administration? Who is it that you are relying on on advice? Who do you basically hand the kings to the kingdom off to um, when this election is over? And that's part of what we saw during the Obama era, is that all of the people who got us into the financial crisis were immediately brought in inside the house, right? And when you have a certain level of confidence in institutions, that's kind of what got us 
that's got what's got us into this mess. So there's an argument that this broader theolo- theoretical conversation kind of cuts through all of the nitty gritty of the policy details that might cause people's eyes to gloss over. And so it feels like abstract kind of ideological work of a lot of the work that Jacobin does that maybe, oh, there are populations that might not be ready for that kind of analysis. But I know at my core, that is, I think, the most convincing argument. So I'm really grateful to those who are out there helping to shift not just on a policy perspective, what we should and should not care about, but also help help people to understand the bigger picture because you don't have to lead the horse to water. You know, if they understand ideologically the signposts they should be looking for in a candidate, including candidates well beyond Bernie Sanders, because it's not me, it's it's us, and we're going to need myriad people around the country coming into leadership positions, both grassroots and elected, if we're going to be able to enact any of this. I think that's completely right. And I also wanted to say a note about corporations. So there's a lot of discussion about corporations having been sort of corrupted by greed or there being bad apples that need to be, you know, like reined in. I'm mixing metaphors here. (laughs) And this idea that something has gone awry about corporations and corporations need to be returned to a previous state of goodness. This is where the socialist analysis that we are informed by at Jacobin becomes really useful, even if we're not constantly demanding immediately that we rush to the barricades or eliminate all (laughs) private, you know, control of the means of production or anything like that. It's just that we understand that actually it does not matter if you are a good person. It doesn't matter if you want to be kind to your workers. This is referring to, you know, the capitalist class here. You're still driven by the profit motive. And actually, if you decide that you want to cut against that motive, if you want to actually, um, you know, raise wages for your workers on your own, for example, or improve like their working conditions and so on, or, you know, be more environmentally friendly in your production, you're going to cut into your own profits. And the problem with with that is that because of the laws of the market, you are not going to be competitive anymore and your business is going to go under. John Steinbeck actually wrote about this sort of it's the idea that the monster has to keep growing or else the monster dies. And that's not that's not down to anybody's individual greed. It's not down to the personality of billionaires, though, frankly, I find that billionaires often have really terrible personalities. (laughs) But it's really not down to that. It's actually like a fundamental truth about how corporations need to behave in a market society in order to not go under. And then the other fundamental truth is that if corporations go under, there's always the threat that the people who own those corporations are no longer going to, they're not necessarily going to own another one, right? The the real threat, the basic threat at the end of the line is that the capitalist class will become, as we call it, proletarianized. You'll just become a worker. But it's not very nice or fun to be a worker in a capitalist society. And so that's what keeps capitalists operating by the profit motive. So this is the reason why I'm bringing this up is because it really does come to bear on these conversations, for example, about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders' climate plans. If you think that the problem is that there's something sort of, something has gone awry with corporations and you're going to um, get rid of the bad corporations and the bad CEOs, and you're going to bring in the good ones or bring out the best in the ones that exist and make them good, and that's how you're going to get out of the climate crisis, then you're fundamentally mistaken, or at least you just don't believe what I just said about how corporations work. 
Bernie Sanders obviously calls himself a democratic socialist. I think he has a healthy skepticism about corporations and their ability to be key partners in social change. Not their willingness, but their actual fundamental economic ability to be key partners in social change. And that's the same perspective that he brings to bear on Medicare for all. We're not going to somehow, you know, we're going to create a public option and this is going to force the private insurers to compete and that's going to bring out the best in them and they can be key, par key partners with us in, you know, making sure that everyone has decent health care. He's basically saying, no, I know how these I know how these guys operate. And it doesn't even matter what's in their hearts. They have to operate like that under this system. And therefore, we just have to build a fence and keep them at bay to make sure that people have the things they need. One of the most powerful messages that Bernie has and the reason why you see people responding to him at town halls, et cetera, the way they do is because he's one of the only politicians that I've ever seen where he says it's not your fault. And it's the first time that so many of us have heard it because the pervading narrative between both parties is you made choices, you're the undeserving poor, even and you have even poor people thinking this about themselves and being very self-critical. And it really feels like catharsis to have someone not just say structural change, not just talk about institutional bias, but to understand that institutional bias isn't just not being invited to the golf game because you're a woman or not being invited to whatever because you're a person of color. It's also the institutional barriers that are built in legally in terms of corporate structures that are directly and purposefully keeping us down. Yeah. I want to go back to this not your fault thing because I think this is so important. So neoliberalism is the sort of form of capitalism that we, capitalism and politics that we have today. Some people would say that neoliberalism is kind of a bunk term. You should just call it capitalism without a labor opposition or capitalism without a left opposition, which is to say the most vicious that capitalism can possibly get without anybody standing in its way. This system is extraordinarily ruthless. Uh, it punishes people for being poor. It criminalizes poverty. It slaps debt on people just for not having enough money to pay whatever they were trying to get when they went into debt. People get, like you heard in Bernie's town hall, people, their children are on the verge of death and debt collectors will swarm them in hospitals in the ICU. This is a ruthless system. But it has an ideological component as well. I mean, the fundamental basis is material. It's economic. This is all driven by the profit motive of the people at the top, as we discussed earlier, right? But there's an ideological basis too, which is that how do you keep people from revolting in a system like that? You've got to convince people that there is a path from the bottom to the top, but that only the best and the brightest and the most hardworking are able to find that path. You can't tell them what that path is. That's a secret. But you tell them that they can find that path if they're bright enough. And then you hold up a few people here and there and you say, look, these people found the path. And what it does is it makes everyone feel like absolute garbage all the time and blame themselves for their problems when these are fundamentally structural problems. It also is very atomizing, culturally atomizing, which is to say that it makes people feel alienated. They feel alienated from their jobs. They feel alienated from each other. Because one of the things about the system is that you're in competition with other people to find that path wherever it may be. And other people are presumed to be standing in your way because like you've seen that only a few people ever get to find that path and make it to the top, right? This is actually functionally turning you against your neighbor. It's turning you against people in your community. And it's really easy for bigotry and prejudice to slip in there and color people's sense of alienation and, and, and competition with each other. Now you've got people blaming whole groups for standing in their way, right? Bernie Sanders is coming in and shattering all of that for people. What he's saying is, 
this is not your fault. This is their fault. He's naming the antagonist, the billionaire class. He's saying, these are the people who are doing this to you. And if you look around, all of these people who are different from you have the same problems as you. And the only way that we are going to get those people up there to stop doing that to us is if we stand together and form a mass movement of the working class across lines of difference. We're going to have to set all that stuff aside. And we go at them together, right? And he's offering to be a leader for that movement, but he's under no illusions that he can do that himself. The movement itself has to do that. The mass movement of the multiracial, diverse working class has to come together across lines of difference and say, this isn't our fault. This is your fault. And we're going to change the system. Yeah. I want to pick up on, on one part of that is I, I think that sometimes what happens, because I get into really interesting race class conversations about this sort of stuff, right? Because a lot of my peers having been a beneficiary of a lot of these elitism conferring institutions are both people of color and people who have, they are that talented. They are the people who made it through this Horatio Alger, you know, mythology of the American dream and are proof perfect that it works. And so having a conversation with them who are sensitive to structural barriers as people of color, but who are beneficiaries of the system themselves and who finally were like, oh, I made it to the mountaintop. I have my job at this elite firm, et cetera, et cetera. It ends up being this bit of a mind twist <laughs> to keep it PC. When, when, when they hear things like, okay, you have to put it all aside, you know, put our differences aside to achieve this solidarity, what comes to mind for them is all of the moments historically that mass struggle has meant achievements disproportionately for white America or male America and their discrete interests have been thrown under the bus, if not during the movement, then immediately thereafter. So there is this kind of necessary sensitivity to making sure that the rising tide actually does lift all boats and to pay enough attention to the discrete needs of communities to make it worthwhile for people to invest in the coalition. But at the same time, there's this countervailing phenomenon that's happening where the historical failures or the the mis historical missteps of broad movement building are weaponized against the prospect of a better kind of coalition today. So instead of saying, you know, the New Deal had its flaws, it, you know, marginalized domestic workers, agriculture workers were disproportionately black, et cetera. Let's make sure we don't do that again. The conversation becomes the New Deal was racist. Let's not do that again. Right. And so part of the work for me as a journalist was always, particularly as a person of color, was to say, hey, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Your concerns are valid. But the coalition building fundamentally, if you were going to be a minority in a country that's still 70 percent white, is to figure out what those gains to trade are and not let racism be used to divide us up, either racism from the right by people who are just telling you people of color suck, you know, Mexicans are rapists, or from people on the left that say, don't trust white people, they will never have shared interest with you, despite the fact that historically and electorally we see all of these people, low-income people, working-class people, who very much have a shared interest. And when you poll black Americans and when you poll white working-class folks, they share 
interests. They all think that the economy, they all think that healthcare, they all think that the Green New Deal, they all think that education are priorities. And to the extent that there is, there are differences, they're seized upon by the media who want us to believe that there is no gain, there's no overlapping interest there. And part of the work is to make those interests extraordinarily clear without making people feel like their specific needs are being undervalued. It's a, it's a balancing act. It's a very complicated paradox. I will start by saying that when I say sweep it all aside, I mean sweep the prejudice and the bigotry aside, but it's specific concerns, for instance, about racial oppression or about homophobia or sexism are not only completely legitimate and valid, but are actually really important drivers of our agenda. You know, for for example, I'll just pull a random example out. I wrote an article called I'm Gay and I Want Medicare for All. That was a great and it's one. just a list of ways that Medicare for All is actually one of the best ways to address some of the problems that are facing LGBTQ people today. And these kinds of stories tend not to see the light of day. They tend to be replaced by stories about how universal social programs are somehow going to work against the specific interests of groups that are you know, facing some kind of cultural oppression in society, longstanding and very deep-rooted cultural oppression, when the truth of the matter is quite different, actually. I mean, there, there certainly have been a few stories and not nearly enough about what Medicare for All would mean for Black people in this country, given the disparities in healthcare that people receive based on race. Um, is it going to solve everything? No. But I do recall a very cynical person saying, will breaking up the bank solve racism? <laughs> and that was garbage. And we shouldn't let that kind of thinking creep into our ideas on the left. We have to dream boldly together and we have to have solidarity with each other. We can adjudicate some of these differences about how we go about pursuing our shared goals and while also remaining sensitive to the fact that people have different experiences in this world based on vectors of social oppression that are very real and very deeply felt. But there's no question that we have to have solidarity if we want to win any of the things that we know are going to benefit us all. I couldn't say it better. Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Megan. I really appreciate it. I feel like this was like democratic socialism, a girl chat hour where we can just cathartically <laughs> let it all out. And I really appreciate it. I think I'm excited for our listeners to, ha to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much. This is so great. That's it for this week. Let us know what you think at hearetheburn at berniesanders.com or send us a tweet with the hashtag hearetheburn. If you haven't already, please, please, please take a moment to rate, review, or like us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening. That's how people hear word of our show and the revolution continues to spread. As always, transcripts will be up soon. Thanks for listening. Till next time.